To Genesis chapter 49, I invite you to turn with me this morning. We will pick up where we left off last week at verse 8 and continue our reading through verse 12 of Genesis 49. As you are turning there, let me remind you that we are in that portion of Scripture that is popularly called the blessing of Jacob upon his sons, but which we have thought better to call the testament of Jacob. And you remember the reason why, because there is so much in this chapter that sounds more like curses than like blessings. As a matter of fact, we heard Jacob last week curse the anger and the wrath of Simeon and Levi. And before that, Jacob told Reuben, his firstborn, that he was unstable as water. Though he was preeminent, he would not be preeminent. Because of that sin, remember, of sleeping with Bilhah. Reuben's tribe would amount to very little, and Reuben himself earned that terrible title, unstable as water. Now, put yourself for a moment in the place of Judah, standing there. Your father Jacob's dim eyes now turn in your direction. So far, Reuben's sin has earned him Jacob's denunciation. Simeon and Levi's anger is cursed, and it is promised that they will be scattered in Israel. And what about you? You who lustfully intermarried with the accursed Canaanites. You who slept with your daughter-in-law. You who turned and almost put her to death for showing up pregnant from the same event. You who in total hypocrisy said about Joseph, your brother, Jacob's favorite son, your father's favorite son, what profit is it to kill him? Let's just sell him. After all, he is our brother. I say, were you in Judah's place? What would you expect to hear from Jacob? Let's read it. But first a prayer. Our Father in heaven, speak, we pray, for your servants are listening. And teach us the mighty truths of your word, that we may live according to it. Embrace it, love it, and glorify you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jacob to Judah, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Talk about a surprise. And a delightful one at that. Waiting, no doubt, for a curse on his actions that lay on his mind like darkly, indelibly imprinted pornographic pictures from the past. Judah is instead treated to a kaleidoscope of beautiful images, of praise, of preeminence, of prosperity. Nothing, absolutely nothing of Judah's checkered past is brought up against Judah, who, as we saw several weeks ago, repented of those past actions. Only a bright and glorious future is painted for him and his tribe. In fact, in a turn that might seem surprising to us, it is Judah, after all that tax and all that time that has been spent and paid to Joseph, it is not Joseph, it is Judah who will be preeminent among the tribes. It is to him, not to Joseph, that the other tribes will bow. It is from him that Abraham's seed and covenant will continue. From him that the king of kings will eventually come. And looking back over the past several chapters, it makes sense. I'm sure we've heard much about Joseph. That is true. And Joseph has proven a man of noble character and a faithful servant of the Lord, to be sure. But if you think about it, it is Judah who has undergone the most Amazing transformation, the greatest development by the grace of God has been seen in in Judah. It's he who has gone from the lustful, self-centered man to a man of humility and self-sacrifice. Remember, willing to lay down his life for young Benjamin, for Jacob's second favorite? camera may have been focused on Joseph now for some time, but uh, it's never completely left Judah, and now it swings totally on him, and there it will stay for most of the rest of the old epoch and well into the new. And true to Father Jacob's blessing here, what the camera will see in Jacob and in his tribe are three things, and I'm indebted to the late Dr. James Boyce for pointing them out in a sermon he preached on this text years ago. Three things that stand out in this text and in the rest of Judah's history in the Bible. Praise, preeminence, and prosperity. First, consider the praise of Judah. By which I do not mean the praise that Judah gives to God. I mean the praise that Judah will receive himself. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Now, what we have here in the Hebrew is a wonderful play on words. And the whole chapter is rich with these uh, uh, plays on words. It's an elaborate one in this case, in both alliteration and rhyme, having to do with Judah's name. It sounds something like this, the Hebrew does. Yehuda, Yaduka. Literally, Judah, they praise you. In fact, the play on words continues into the next line with Yadeka, your hand, which shall be on the neck of his enemies. So every other word in verse 8 reads Yehuda, Yaduka, Yadeka. Jacob, they praise you, and your hand is on the neck of your enemies. Reminds us of a passage way back in Genesis 37 when Leah started finally, remember, having children as she so desired, bearing children. And on our fourth child, finally, Leah stops looking for Jacob's approval for bearing his children and learns to turn her eyes instead on the Lord. And so the name, Judah, she says, because this time I will praise the Lord. As they say, it's not necessarily God who is the object of praise in this case here in 49. Jacob, whose name sounds like praise, was always going, is also going to be the object of that praise. He will receive praise. Now, who's going to praise him? His brothers. Now, this is a rare instance in the Bible where praise is ascribed to a human being. Versus being ascribed to God. It's like only three other passages in the Old Testament, which makes this short phrase really very remarkable. Judah shall receive praise. But already we're sort of forced up against the long view of this prophecy as well. And much prophecy in the Bible is like this. It contains a short view and a long view. In fact, oftentimes biblical prophecy has not only a short view and a long view, but several layers, sort of like mountain peaks in the distance. One mountain range standing before another, standing before another, and another. So the fulfillments of prophecy often take place. Take the first peak. It's not entirely unimaginable, is it, that Judah in Judah's life, received praise from his brothers for his faithfulness, for the blessedness of knowing that through Judah's line their own would be richly blessed. They were different men now than before, remember? These are converted men now. In their heart of hearts, they they know that praise and not jealousy is the right response toward the brother of God's choosing. Then go on to the next peak of fulfillment, to the descendants of Judah now. And whom do you find? Men like David. Men like David, the great King David, who receives the praise of men for his great works. Remember the day even before David becomes king? Remember while Saul is 
still on the throne, how King Saul's jealousy was so bitterly ignited against David. you remember this? Because the women sang to each other in the streets. you remember what they were singing? Saul is slain as thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then go on to the far mountain peak. The greatest fulfillment of this prophecy, entering into that same city into which David victoriously had entered time after time, returning from war to the praise and adoration of the people, the king of kings will come. On the back of a donkey, on the colt, The foal of a donkey, Jesus entered the city to the cheers of the crowd, crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Remember that Jesus, like David, and a long succession of kings after David in Jerusalem, I say Jesus himself was a descendant of Judah. And all Israel bowed to him. He was indeed a king. He was the king of kings. But he would be first enthroned on a cross. And his crown would be made of thorns. Pressed into his brow. And there he would suffer the terrible, unspeakable horror of the wrath of God in him. For us, for his people, and in our place. That's not the end. He would rise from the dead. Jesus, in the glory of a king, of the king, triumphed over death itself, the last enemy. He ascended into heaven to the praise. Can you imagine the shouts of praise in heaven when Christ returned there and to his throne? And today he rules from the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. He rules, receiving praises from angels and from the just men made perfect in glory and from his people all over the face of the earth. I tell you, Jacob could only have known in part what he spoke of here in prophecy to Judah. From Judah would come the one to whom all the praise of earth and heaven belongs. After a manner of speaking then, The praise that went to Judah was really ultimately praise to God. Like the praise given to men in heaven that takes the form of uh, crowns. You know, those crowns we shall cast at his feet while we cry out as we have already this morning. Thou art worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Judah is praised and will be praised indeed in the person of Jesus Christ. Second, Jacob speaks of preeminence for Judah. Picking up in the middle of verse 8 now. Your hand shall be on the neck 
of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Strikes us as strange again, doesn't it? That this should be said to Judah? I mean, after all, has not Jacob already given double portion to Joseph? And is not Joseph the one who's on the throne? At the moment, at least, in Egypt? Had not the brothers bowed down to Joseph, just like the dreams had predicted? Yes, yes, and yes. But things are going to change. It will be to Judah that the brothers will bow. 400 years later, Judah's tribe will take the lead in the conquest of the land of promise. Then Judah will become the royal tribe of Israel from whom her kings will come. Well, it's true that the, the first human king in Israel, you're running way ahead of me, of course you know that Saul did not come from Judah, he came from Benjamin. That is true. Saul was the first king, but the first great king. The greatest of all the human kings was David, the man after God's own heart. And he did come from Judah. James Hastings put this this way in his work, The Greater Men and Women of the Bible. The David of Israel is not simply the greatest of her kings. He is the great man in everything. He monopolizes all her institutions. He is her shepherd boy, the representative of her toiling classes. He is her musician, the successor of Jubal and Miriam and Deborah. He is her soldier, the conqueror of all the Goliaths that would steal her peace. He is her king, numbering her armies and regulating her polity. He is her priest, substituting a broken and contrite spirit for the blood of bulls and of rams. He is her prophet, presaging with his latest breath the everlastingness of his kingdom. And he is her poet. All her psalms are called by his name. Many other kings would follow in Judah's line, of course, Solomon, David's son, another great king. If Jerusalem was conquered by David, it was built by Solomon in its pomp and glory. Preeminent in wisdom, no other would before or since be so wise as he, according to the Lord's own measure. His hand would pen after his father the greatest share of the wisdom literature in your Bible. Of course, not all of the kings of Judah and Judah's line would exactly cover themselves with glory. But there were plenty who would receive the epitaph He did what was right. Try to imagine higher praise than this for a man than was given to Josiah, the reformer king, with these words. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, 
and walked in the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Tell me, what would you want more to be said of your children or of your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren than that? That they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned neither to the left nor to the right. Even after the terrible exile, the captivity to Babylon, because of her sins, still Judah would produce great leaders like Zerubbabel who would lead the people back, govern them in Jerusalem. Human history since has not produced such a long and illustrious line of rulers who during their day kept their hand on the neck of their enemies. Like Judas, mine. Yet even at their greatest, none of them held a candle to the one, the preeminent ruler who would rise from them. If Judah was, as Jacob here describes him, the lion of the tribes, then who must he be whom the scripture calls the lion of of the tribe of Judah. Weep no more, said one of the elders in the book of Revelation to the Apostle John in his vision. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And so he has. In his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven, your Christ, brothers and sisters, your King, your Lord has laid his hand on the neck of his enemies. Satan is a defeated foe, he has conquered even death itself. The scepter has not passed. From Judah, from between his feet. A Hebrew expression, by the way, that refers to the private parts. In other words, from the loins of Judah has come this offspring named Jesus, who today wields his staff over all the earth until tribute comes to him, the obedience of the peoples. Now there are days... Yes, there are when it does not appear that it is so. Not to our physical eyes. Rebellion against this king, the king, our king, is still rampant on the earth. In some places more than others. But he rules on high. And the Bible tells us he scoffs. He laughs. 
at his enemies. As they try to throw off his fetters, not realizing all the time that King Jesus has his hand on their necks. And in his other hand is poised the iron scepter ready to dash them to pieces. Many parts of the world today, they still harass God's people. We pray about them every Lord's Day in this house. We did this morning for those in Indonesia. But the King of Kings is watching. And with his piercing eyes, he sees all. And the lion will have his prey and no one will dare to challenge him. In his ear rings his father's voice, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And daily, daily, more and more are bowing the knee to him and his kingdom is spreading through the nations, even those who would stamp out his kingdom. In fact, especially those nations. Witness the spread of the gospel in places like China. The harder they oppress God's people there, the more the gospel spreads. When missionaries were forced out of that land with the rise of communism, there were less than one million Christians in China. Today, we hear that the estimate stands at 100 million who profess the name of Christ in China. The Lord's kind providence, this fell into my hands this morning. This paragraph, quote, especially after the missionary endeavors of the last two centuries, it has become possible to speak of a great worldwide Christendom. William Temple, the evangelical Anglican, in his sermon at his enthronement at the Archbishop as the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1942, referred to the spread and sway of Christianity in the modern world as, quote, the great new fact of our time. End quote. The dramatic progress of the gospel in our day in the areas of the world heretofore resistant, think of China or Nepal, has made that statement still more true. We hear frequently in the press of Islam's burgeoning numbers. But Christianity remains far the larger religion and continues to outpace Islam in conversions almost two to one. In 1900, 75% of Christians were white and Western. In 2000, 75% of Christians were non-white and non-Western. It is the largest religion in the world. Christianity has been and remains today a religion of every tongue, tribe, and nation on the earth. End quote. 
It is, Christians, and it will be. Just as Jacob prophesied it would be, Judah would receive the praise. Judah would be preeminent. And third, Judah would prosper. That is what all that curious language is there in verse 11. Did you catch that? Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. In other words, the vines, the choice vines filled with grapes will be so numerous and so fruitful that the master will have no qualms at all about tying his colt to that vine knowing for sure that he will have his fill of the grapes. That's what colts do when you tie them to the vine. It won't matter. So great the prosperity. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 11, he'll wash his clothes in wine. In other words, wine will be as plentiful as water. So prosperous. Verse 12, then to go on, is translated in my Bible this way. It says, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. But a good argument could be made that the old King James Version really had it right. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. In a land flowing with milk and honey, or in this case, with milk and wine, he will have his fill. For his kingdom will prosper like no other kingdom ever has or ever will. Now, you needn't look far in the Bible to see that Judah's territory was a prosperous kingdom indeed. From the time they entered the land, it's described in the book of Deuteronomy as a good land, a land full of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of the hill, whose hills you can dig copper. And by the time the prophets came at the end to warn Judah about the judgment to come because of their sin, how did the prophets describe Judah? Judah with her rich robes and her delightful houses. Those were the terms they used to describe Judah's standard of living. But for all the prosperity of Judah in biblical times, and for all the prosperity God has lavished upon his people in this life, nothing can compare to the splendor, to the prosperity that belongs to our King and glory. Nor will anything compare to the prosperity of the new earth when, brothers and sisters, as it were, heaven comes to earth. When our Lord shall come again. And even though now... Jesus comes to us with every good and perfect gift... And chief among them being 
life and love and joy and peace. Yet greater gifts and prosperity is still coming. And Christians, you who are in Christ have it all. Because you have the lion of Judah. Because this God is your God and will be your God forever and ever. Your king, Christian, your king reigns. He rules on high in preeminence. He receives the praise of heaven and earth. And his kingdom prospers and will prosper above all kingdoms. So back with me now to the side of Jacob's deathbed. How Judah's heart, can you imagine it? How Judah's heart must have leapt in his chest when he first heard from Jacob's lips what was going to come of his family. Now let your heart and mine do the same. And let us proclaim it from the rooftops that all the nations may hear and come in. Your king, our king, the Lion of Judah, is highly exalted and has received a name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory God the Father. Amen.